Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 1. Uh, we've been tracking with this theme, every story whispers the name of Jesus. And that means wherever we turn in our Bibles, that we need to make our way somehow to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that this morning. We're going to read a familiar passage from the book of Exodus. And I pray that that will be true for us this morning. Exodus chapter 1. Um, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us, and they escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whose name was Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him in a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river, and she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of water. If you go over to verse 23 of chapter 2, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you, and we thank you for the beautiful hope that Christmas brings to us. Jesus, we will spend forever doing things that no mind has conceived, but we also know at the center of our new existence with you and the new heavens and the new earth will be that of praise, of bowing the knee and exclaiming that you are worthy, you are beautiful. And we proclaim that not just then in the future, but we do so now. We bow and we turn our hearts to you and we pray that you would reveal yourself to be beautiful in your word for the good of your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And so what I want to do is for you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that there's a couple here and they have just purchased their dream home. They've gotten it built from the ground up. And not many months after being in their new home, they start to notice a few cracks on the wall, and they have decisions to make. Do we call the contractor? Do we call the drywall crew? Do we fix it ourselves? Do we complain to city council for building this neighborhood uh, in a, a part of the city where the elevation is considerably lower than the wealthy communities around it. And maybe this is the shifting of the soil beneath us. This couple has a decision to make. Now, hang on to that. Have you ever read the Bible and you read something, even a text like the one that is before us, and you have this sneaking suspicion that it's pointing you to something else? That it's this idea of foreshadowing. It's in, very, it's in our good movies, it's in good literature, where the author will drop something earlier on in the book or the show that later becomes beautiful. And, and you realize when you get to this thing back here that you got me. You introduced this thing way back here, and I didn't know that it was pointing me to something greater. And you will be right to look at a passage like ours this morning with that way, that God is the master storyteller, that God is the one who is telling this beautiful story, and he often drops us these little hints to prepare us for something even greater. I want to make the case to you that God oftentimes uses what is common in Israel's history to prepare us for something 
cosmic. He uses what is common, like this common story that we're reading, that we're familiar with, to prepare us for something cosmic, something greater. How would you read Exodus? If this was on your list of, I'm reading through the Bible in a year, and I so happen to read Exodus 1 and Exodus 2, and I'm not in Egypt, and it's not thousands of years before Jesus came, that we're in 2019, right here in Jackson, Mississippi, how would you read Exodus 1 and apply it to your own heart? I think we can glean from this passage. I think what Exodus shows us is, first thing, the cosmic war that we're all a part of. Now, to get at this cosmic war, I'm going to start with the genealogy, right? You see it at the beginning of Exodus 1 where Moses basically gives us the list of names. And these people, these people might be foreign and you might be tempted to just kind of skip it. But Greg, will you show this slide? So, so, so look, all of these names are accounted for in this family tree. And I want you to take a few moments to pay attention to it. So Abraham, which we talked about last week, who was married to Sarah, and they had a son, Isaac, and Abraham was about to offer Isaac, and the Lord says no. Well, uh, the next chapter after the passage that we were in last week, Sarah dies. And five chapters later, Abraham dies. And so now only Isaac is alive. Well, Isaac marries Rebekah, and Rebekah's name was actually in the list of names that we looked at last week. So the author of Genesis was kind of preparing you that even though Abraham and Sarah will die, God has got a wife for his son, Isaac. He marries Rebekah, and they have a set of twins. They have twin boys. The older, oldest is Esau. The youngest is Jacob. Now, in their day, the oldest child should get the blessing. But Jacob was a trickster, and he deceived his brother to get the birthright. And so even though Jacob is the younger, these two scheme, and Jacob gets the blessing. Now, Jacob has to marry two wives. That's why you see the fork in the road right there. He goes and he wants to marry the daughter of Laban, and he wants to marry Rachel. And so he works seven years for Laban to get Rachel. Well, on the night of his wedding, he realizes he's actually been tricked. So the deceiver, who is Jacob, the trickster, is actually tricked by Laban and is given his oldest daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. So Jacob goes back to Laban, like, brother, you're not playing fair. And he says, well, you know the custom. I can't give you my youngest daughter while my oldest daughter isn't married. So why don't you work for me another seven years? And it says that he so loved Rachel that those seven years seemed like a few days. But now you got drama because he's married to two sisters. This reads like a soap opera, y'all, I promise, right? <laughs> so he's married to two sisters. Well, the wife that he loves the most, she can't have children. And so Leah bears him four children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Now, Rachel is barren, and so she goes to her servant, Bilhah, and says, Jacob, why don't you sleep with my servant, and that way I can have children. Now, doesn't that sound 
Like we've heard that before. Ain't that what Abraham and Sarah did? Did Sarah not say, because I can't conceive, go sleep with my servant? So we already know how this turns out, right? Well, Jacob does it. And his servant, her servant, bears him two sons. So first four sons with Leah, second two sons with the, the servant of Rachel, Bilhah. So that gives you six sons. Well, then guess what? Leah says, well, wait a minute. She has her servants having your kids. I have a servant, Zilpah. Jacob, why don't you go sleep with Zilpah? And that's how they got Gad and Asher. I told y'all it's messed up, right? <laughs> so then one of Leah's sons come out of the field with food, and Rachel says, hey, give me some of those mandrakes, which we think is an aphrodisiac. And so in exchange, you can have Jacob. And so one of her sons gives her mandrakes. Rachel gives Jacob back to Leah. They lay together, and then they have two more sons. Issachar and Zebulun. I know, y'all, it's broken, right? And then finally, the Lord opens Rachel's womb. And her first son that she bears is Joseph. And then she gives birth to Benjamin. But she dies giving birth to Benjamin. And that's how you get this list of names. Now, the question that we have to ask is how in the world did these, this nomadic family end up in Egypt? It's pretty simple. All of these sons right here, they hated him. Not only did Jacob love Rachel more, but this is the firstborn son of the woman that he loves the most. And so all of these other sons, they hate him. And so what do they do? They sell him into slavery thinking that he's dead. Now, he ends up in Egypt, and something happens. There's a famine in Egypt. Didn't it happen to Abraham? In Genesis 12, wasn't there a famine? And did he not go to Egypt to get food? And the same thing is happening again. There's a famine, and the only place that has food is in Egypt. And the brother that they sold in slavery is the second in command in Egypt. And because of their evil, they actually go to Egypt and meet the brother that they thought was dead. And the Lord saves them all. That's how they end up in Egypt. And the size of their family is 70. Thank you, Greg. Make sense? Now, here's a problem. I told you this is a war. They're God's people, but they trifling. <laughs> they just are. I don't know another. I mean, I could give you other words, but they're trifling, and they die. Did you notice the refrain in the passage? That Joseph, he died, and all of his brothers, and all of that generation as a matter of fact, you're going to see this theme of death even applied to the Egyptians. It's going to say the Pharaoh that knew Joseph, he died, and the next Pharaoh, he came, and then he didn't know God, and then another Pharaoh came, and then he died. That, that what you start to see is that death is all over this passage. It doesn't matter if you're a patriarch. It doesn't matter if you know the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're an Egyptian. All of y'all are dying in the passage, and so death is a problem here. But there's another problem. Pharaoh, 
who knew Joseph, we meet a new guy who comes up. And it says that he didn't know him. And so he's afraid, he's forgetful, and then he's fearful, and then he's furious, and then he is just fanatical. And that's what you start to see being flushed out in this passage. Look at it. Look at it right there where it says, uh, and, his peop- and he said to his people, this is Pharaoh, Behold, the people of Israel, they are too many and too mighty. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. And so what does he do? He enslaves them. He doesn't treat them with kindness anymore. He enslaves them because he's afraid. But then it gets worse. In verse 15, he actually says he calls the midwives, and if you see a Hebrew son and he's born, I want you to kill him. But if it's a daughter, he can live. And then it gets worse. Look at verse 22. And then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Do you see it now? It's getting from bad to worse. First, it was the midwives. If y'all are giving birth and you give birth to a son, throw him into the Nile. And now he's giving an all-out blessing. Any Egyptian. If any of you see any male Hebrew child, you all have my blessing and the endorsement of Pharaoh to kill them all. You see what's going on? And not only is that a problem, I think blindness is also a problem for the people of Israel. Exodus 1 and Exodus 2, they're showing us how bad life is. And they don't cry out to the Lord until Exodus chapter 2. So all of this is happening, but it's not until the end of Exodus chapter 2 where it finally says, and the people groaned, and then they cried out. And, and, And what do we make of that? Here's what I think is happening. I think because they're fruitful and because they eat good food, they're kind of blinded. They're they're forgetting that Egypt was never your permanent home, that this was supposed to be a temporary place where you go and you dwell. And the covenant I made with Abraham is I will call you out. But it reads as if even though things are getting bad and bad and bad and bad, it has to get absolutely horrific before they actually cry out to the Lord. Now, why would I say that? Why would I say that they're deceived? Because in Exodus 14, do you know what they told Moses when he brought him out? Why did you bring us out, Moses? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone and leave us here that we may stay and serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to stay and serve them. That's Exodus 14. What about Exodus 16? And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they said to them, would that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. When we had meat by the pots and ate bread of the full. You get the image? Life is hard. 
And yet when they are on the way out of Egypt, they are actually minimizing how hard it was. We had food, we had bread, we had meat. It wasn't that bad. And you read Exodus 1 and 2 like, no, it's really that bad. You see what's going on? A cosmic war. They're dying. They're enslaved. And it reads as if they don't fully see it. Now, what does this have to do with us? Exodus is pointing us somewhere. We might not be enslaved in Egypt, but you do know that Paul, when speaking about us in Romans chapter 6, he says, you are slaves, not to Pharaoh, but to sin. And you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. You were in the kingdom of darkness, enslaved not by Egyptians, but our own sin, our own flesh, this world, and the devil. And Pharaoh, who's doing all the killing with power, he's pointing us to someone even more sinister than him. Did you notice that, that Pharaoh wanted to kill all the Hebrew boys? And did you pay attention to our call to worship? From the book of Revelation, chapter 12, it says a woman was pregnant. And she was about to give birth to a child. And Satan, who's no longer a little sneaky serpent as in Genesis chapter 3, now he's a full-grown dragon in Revelation chapter 12. And what does he want to do? He wants to stand right where the woman is giving birth. And he wants to eat her child Doesn't that sound a lot like what happened to Jesus? When Jesus was born and Herod gives us this, this, this command to go and kill all the Hebrew boys. Do you see the theme? Whether you're going back to Genesis where Cain kills Abel or you're going all the way over here to Exodus where, where Pharaoh's trying to kill Moses, the deliverer, or you go to the end of Revelation and now the dragon is in full all force and he's trying to kill the, 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 the child, or you go back to Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus is born and King Herod is trying to kill the son, that you get this cosmic war that's happening in Scripture where the seed of the serpent hates the deliverer. And we're in that war. Because as Egypt points us, it points us to, I think, our tendency to forget and to be deceived. We forget, don't we? That this isn't home. We forget that there's a home and the builder and maker is God. We forget that there's a city that Jesus is preparing. And our world might be mixed with a little suffering, but if you add a little prosperity, 
a little material prosperity, a little good, isn't it easy to fall into this trap that no, things aren't that bad. Yes, they are that bad. We are dying and we're enslaved outside of the intervention of Jesus and we are a, a, a slave to those things that we give our hearts to. And, and I think how we're supposed to read Exodus is there is a cosmic war. And it's happening. And we're caught up in it. Exodus is pointing us to a greater bondage, a greater tyrant, a greater deception. Now, the second thing we see in this passage is the cosmic cry to a hearing and helping God. At some point, there was a moment of clarity for the Israelites. One of my former professors, uh, he actually has tried to figure out the time length, and I won't get into that, but he thinks a, a few generations have passed uh, by the time you get to uh, chapter 2, verse 23, that, that, that next Pharaoh dies, and by the time Moses is born, and we believe he is 40 when he has to flee Egypt, and he's 40 when he comes back, and we, we could get all into the dates, but a significant amount of time is passing and yet, they cry out. Their redemptive imaginations are set aflame. They can see. The Lord removes the veil. And did you notice what they do? They cry out to God. It says they groan because of their slavery. And look at what happens when they do. It says their cry for rescue came up to God. And God, hearing their groaning, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now, here's what's profound. Egypt was very polytheistic. Pharaoh was a god. The sun was a god. Cows were gods. The Nile was a god. I mean, they had what, they, what we call retainer sacrifice. Pharaoh was such a big deity that when Pharaoh died, they chose members from his family and they killed them and they put them in the tomb with him so that in the afterlife, they would still be his servants on the other side. You, you feel how dark that is? They worship animals. It's a reason Israel builds the golden calf while they're up there, sort of, when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, the residue of their worship is still on the Israelite people. That the Nile, when the Nile River would, would get too high or get too low, they would do what we call virgin sacrifices. You would find a virgin and you would throw her into the Nile. And supposedly, if you appease the God of the Nile, then the Nile would either relent or it would rise. You live with this fear is I have to appease the God. Do I have their attention? And Moses with beautiful simplicity, it says that they all they did was cried out. You didn't have to go offer a kid. You didn't have to go get in the tomb of, 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 of some dead person to get his affection. It says all they did was open their mouths and he is a God of hearing. And he is a God who remembers, and he remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You will not stay in Egypt. 
and I will bring you out. And it's not as if God ever forgot. He is being faithful to the covenant. He remembers the covenant, and he acts in consistency with that. And it says he knew. It's the image of a husband and wife that, that they know each other and they bear children. He sees, he hears, and that's what's happening in the passage. And inasmuch as the passage shows us about the war, it also shows us something about their God. Did you notice? And I think this is intentional on Moses' part who wrote this. Whenever you see Pharaoh turning up the fire, you see the Lord turning up the fire. And even before Israel cried out for deliverance, God is like, I'm not waiting on you to cry out to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to be working in silence and in secrecy behind the scenes. And then one day you'll see it. Did you notice that, that, that look how it's written? Look at verse 15 and 16. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you midwife a Hebrew, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But did you notice what happens? It says they feared God more than him. Did you catch what happens when they try to enslave them and give them hostile work conditions? It says the more that they oppressed them, the more babies they had. And then did you remember when he gave an all-out, anybody in Egypt, kill any Hebrew boy you see? God says, okay, that's how you want to play. I'm going to show you how gangster I am, right? L listen, to, listen to the command. Any Egyptian, kill any Hebrew boy you see. That's the command from Pharaoh. And God says, okay, you want to play? We can play. How about this? How about this Levite couple have a son who is fine? And that fine could be, it could mean strong. And remember I told you back in their day, the infant mortality rate was really high. And so it could be that Moses, he just comes out and he looks like a strong child. And this Hebrew mother has this child and hides this child. And then think about it. This is the idea. Build something like a mini ark, like Noah built, and you put this fine child in, and you float him down the river. The river that y'all Egyptians worship, I'm going to float a child down. And then what's the likelihood that Pharaoh's daughter sees it, and she's moved with compassion, and then Moses' sister comes to her, and it's like, hey, can, can you keep, do you want to keep the child? And she says, yes, keep it. And why don't you go get that woman who happens to be Moses' mother to nurse this child, and then when the child is weaned, you give him back to me, and I'm going to raise him in Pharaoh's house. And by the way, I'm going to pay you with Pharaoh's money to nurse your child. And then I'm going to name him Moses, which means to draw out. Do you see the irony there of all the things that Pharaoh is trying to do? God is actually saying, brother, you can't stop this. You're going to pay the woman who had the child with your money to nurse her own child. And then you're going to raise him. And he's going to be the one that will deliver my people. You want to play? We can play. You see how amazing God is in the passage? 
Now, what does this all have to do with Christmas right here and right now? Because someone greater than Moses has come. You know that, right? Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's Moses' way of saying, I'm not the Christ. There is one coming after me who was before me, and you shall listen to him. Isn't that what the Father says about Jesus? This is my beloved son, whom you shall what? Listen to. If you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew, like no other gospel writer, is giving us Jesus, and he's saying Moses was this, and Jesus is the fulfillment. And so, right there in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is sent by God to deliver his people and to save them not from Egypt and not from Pharaoh, but from their sins. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is an infant, just like Moses, and he's pursued by a murderous serpent king. It's not Pharaoh, now it's Herod. And Jesus, just like Moses, had to go where? He went to Egypt. Of all places, he went to Egypt to hide from the murderous king. And then in Matthew chapter 2, he comes out of Egypt, and we learn that he spends 40 days in the wilderness being tested that sounds a lot like Moses, and that sounds a lot like the people of Israel who were in the wilderness for 40 years, and they failed the test. And then you get to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes onto a mountain, and he does not give them a new law. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he expounds upon the law that Moses gave, and just as Moses, his face shone like glory, Jesus went on the mountain of transfiguration and it wasn't just that, he, that Moses had communed with God. That was Jesus' own glory breaking out. And who was on the mountain with Jesus? It was Moses and Elijah. And Moses fed large crowds of people in the wilderness with manna and quail. And Jesus does this miraculous feeding with bread and with fish. And Moses did not enter the promised land. He was cut off. And don't we believe that that is what happened to Jesus? He was cut off, not because he was a murderer, but because he was dying in the place of murderers. And don't we believe that Jesus, perfect and beautiful, went into the ground to die for us and the Father raised him in power and might and would not let his Holy One see corruption. You see what's happening? Jesus is God's greatest help. Jesus is the evidence of God's cosmic hearing. And here is the question that we ought to think about. Have you cried out? If you're, not, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, it could be that you're deceived. 
It could be that life is comfortable. It could be that, that it, it's not that bad. And I'm here to tell you it is that bad. You're in bondage. You're in bondage. And all you have to do is to cry out in faith. And God hears that cry. He hears that groaning. And if you're here this morning and you are a believer and your eyes are open, praise God. Praise God. You can see. And he's yours. Your eyes are open. Here's my last question. What is God's cosmic help for? My last point is the cosmic freedom that is ours in Jesus. There's a cosmic war. There's a cosmic cry and a cosmic help of God. But what is all of this for? It's for a cosmic freedom. It's not in our text. But when you look at this passage in its context, one of the things that gets repeated over and over and over and over again is let my people go. God goes to Pharaoh through Moses. He says, let my people go. And you want to know the reason God tells Pharaoh to let them go? That they might serve me. And he says it over and over. Exodus 4, Exodus 7, Exodus 8, Exodus 9, and Exodus 10. He's coming to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. And that word for serve, it's not a new word. It's the same word that comes from us from the beginning. When God created Adam and Eve, it says that they took, the Lord God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And that phrase, to work it and to keep it, it could also be translated to serve and obey. That those were the two commandments given to Adam and Eve, serve me and obey me. And does it make, does it dawn on you that that's what Moses is doing? Free them from you and your slavery and your bondage that I may take them out, that they may serve me. And then what does God give Israel? the law, that they might obey me. You see what's going on? It's not just about their physical slavery. It's not just about the physical Pharaoh. It's not just about the physical land of Egypt, that what's happening is, is we're being pointed to something greater, that God is freeing Israel out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt so that they might go into the land he's prepared and that they might worship and enjoy him forever. It's for freedom. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it asks this question, what's the chief end of man? Why do we exist to glorify God and to enjoy him? forever. That's what your heart was made for, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And you only get that when Christ frees you from 
yourself, your sin, the wrath of God, and the grip of Satan. But God does not just free us from that. He frees us to this so that we can wake up every day and say, Lord, I'm free. The shackles are off. And I know, right? I get it. We know enough theology to know about sin and brokenness and fracture and bondage. And that's half truth. The other half of the same coin is that you have been freed in Jesus and you are now free, free to walk with him, free to be holy, free to honor and serve the Lord. The shackles are off because the spirit of freedom now indwells us. We're free. We are no longer enslaved. That's the beauty of Christmas, and that's the cosmic freedom that Jesus brings. And so there was a slave woman, and her name was Araminta Roth. And she was born somewhere in the 1820s. And she was born a slave. And she says, I will die pursuing freedom before I live all my days in slavery. And she escaped from Maryland, and she traveled 100 miles north to Philadelphia. And she met a man by the name of William Steele. And William helped former slaves transition into freedom. And they all had the stench of slavery, the mannerisms of slavery, where they walk with their heads down. They all still had their slave master's name. And what William Steele did, he helped freed slaves live freely. Take those clothes off. Go get cleaned up. What name do you want to be called? And Araminta says, I want to be called Harriet. Harriet Tubman. And Harriet struggled when she was free. She walked around with her heads down saying the same things. And William Steele and their team of abolitionists, they discipled her and showed her, you're free now. You're free to own a business. You're free to look everyone face-to-face, man-to-man, woman-to-woman. You're free. You're free not to put those old clothes back on. You are free. And here is the good news that I think Christians have to hear over and over and over. Do you know you're free? You don't have the old gray clothes on no more. You don't march by the beat of the old master. You have new freedom in Jesus Christ. And what we're calling ourselves to do is to walk in that freedom. Walk in it. Now, back to that couple I told you about at the beginning. You forgot about it, didn't you? (laughs) Back to that couple. You see, I think we can talk about the cosmic, but the cosmic has to break into the common event of our lives, even looking at a crack on a wall. So this couple, 
dream house, they got some options. They can call the contractor back. You did shoddy work. Get your crew back over here and fix this right now. Now, they don't know that this man is working with the crew and they're felons, and he's trying to get them back in a situated. And they don't know that it's, it's, it's not their work. It's not their fault that there's something going on beneath it. They don't know this, but they could reach back out, complain, and gripe, and put a lot of people out of work. Or the wife could complain and gripe. See there, you should have listened to me. You should have listened to me, right? You never make right decisions. Or the husband could say, well, let me just go to Lowe's. Let me go get some, some drywall mix, and I'm going to do it myself. And little does he know that you're going to do it yourself, and you're going to think it's going to take two hours, and it's going to take 20, because you're going to be painting on a, a wall with flat paint. And once you put flat paint back on top of flat paint, it don't blend in. Trust me, I learned the hard way. <laughs> or they could call the city. Some of y'all did 150 years ago. Why did you put this neighborhood right here below the floodplain so that all the water from the adjacent properties, they drain right here in our neighborhood? Or they're free. Free to leave the crack on the wall. Free to not do anything. Free to not argue with each other. Free not to complain. They're free to live with crack in their wall, just like the other people who live in their neighborhood. They're free to let the crack on the wall remind them this was never your permanent home to begin with. You got a home whose builder and maker is God. And it don't all have to be perfect. And you're free to practice hospitality and to look at that crack in your wall as a reminder you got a new home and the moth can't destroy it and the thieves can't steal it and it won't rot or waste away and you're free to look at that crack in the wall every time you see it and said, we're not going to fight about it. We're not going to cause no drama. We're going to live with it because we're free. Now, here's my question. What's your crack in the wall? What is it? What is it? What is gnawing at you? What is enslaving you? What is capturing your attention? What is making you lock in? It's going to make you have hostility between people in your household and, and other brothers and sisters. What is it? And here's the thing that I want you to think about today. You're free to leave it alone. You're free. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you that we see the cosmic war. We thank you that we see your cosmic help. May you, by your spirit, allow us to experience the cosmic freedom. Would you do this for your glory, your honor, in Christ's name, amen.